Welcome, everyone. Uh, this is uh, May 4th, year 2006, the Ontolog Forum, with invited speaker Mr. Uh, Mr. Adam Chire from SRI International, who is going to present to the community his talk uh, on ontology management in Kalo, a cognitive assistant that learns and organizes. And uh, we have more than 30 people here at the session today. And for those who are new new here, uh, usually if we have around like 15 or 20 or less, then we actually go around and have everyone introduce themselves. The, uh, and once we get past 20, uh, the, the process will take way too much time uh, of the uh, presentation and we decided that we'll uh, de de rely on the wiki to tell us I mean, who everybody else is. So uh, we will move on to the agenda, ad agenda of today uh, directly. And uh, for those who are already on the session page, uh, we are providing shared screen support both on WebEx and as a backup on VNC, and also for people who still have problems, the slides are available somewhere down the uh, session page. So you could also download the slides and advance it locally uh, on the speaker's prompt. Um, and before we go into the session, I would, uh, uh, we are glad that Dr. Douglas Engelbart is with us today. Uh, Doug needs no introduction because almost everything we work with online these days, I mean, from hypertext to uh, video conferencing to uh, group where, I mean, all came out of some of the pioneering work he did uh, 30 or 40 years ago. So. Uh, Dr. Engelbart is going to uh, introduce the speaker for us today. Doug? Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm not used to being called Dr. Engelbart or with all the other stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm very pleased to be invited to introduce Adam, whom I met, boy, 10 years ago or more, and uh, when he was working at an earlier phase of his life at SRI. and. Uh, he helped me uh, stumble through trying to get a proposal out that didn't come in, but it was good. And then I sort of followed him since as he went to his other, other positions and then came back to SRI and uh, ended up with this marvelous Kalo program under, under his uh, guidance, which, as far as I can tell, is one of the biggest sort of programs that uh, SRI ever put together. <laughs> as, and um, so it's very much related to my kind of interests and I take it to the ontolog kind of interests and I just think, uh, oh, and besides that he's a good guy and he's a good father. He has five kids or at least he started out with two or three. <laughs> He'll tell you how many he has now but he's a good father and a good husband. So anyway, uh, otherwise, uh, take it away, Pete. Uh, Okay, it's over to you, Adam. All right, thanks, thanks, Doug. So first, a little. The only thing I want to say about my background is that I'm not 
actually an ontologist, but luckily we have lots of people on this call who are, including some who've worked on Kalos. I'm going to that, that means you, Vinay, if you're joining. So I'll defer a, a specific ontology question um, to some of the people who actually worked on this. Um, so the Adam, can I make one one remark? For those who are on VNC, since the VNC is the server is now looking at the WebEx screen and it doesn't refresh itself very well. So whenever uh, Adam says advance the slides, please uh, press your refresh button on the VNC, not your browser refresh button, uh, but the VNC refresh button. Yep. Sorry, Adam. Thanks, Peter. So I'm on slide three, outline of the talk. Um, first, I'm going to uh, give an overview of the Kalo project. Um, which is actually a slightly separate presentation. So for those who've downloaded presentations from the web, uh, there are two decks. Um, and I'll be starting with a Kalo overview, which is called the DARPA Tech version 7 slide deck. Um, after describing kind of what Kalo is and, and why we're doing it and, and what some of the results are, um, I'm going to talk about specific ontology management issues in Kalo. And First, a little bit about how uh, ontology is used within Kalo's architecture, and then also some very you know, unique issues. I think many of the issues that we deal with in Kalo are quite common, um, but there, I think there are certain uh, ontology-related issues that really we stumble upon only in a project um, like, uh, like Kalo. So we'll tell you kind of what our main problems and issues are and some of the things that we've tried to deal with them. Um, so there may be some learning there. And then at the, the last part, I'll show a, a quick demo of a small slice of Kalo um, called uh, Iris. And a lot of the uh, techniques that we use for ontology management and maintenance and engineering um, are encapsulated in, in Iris in, in a small way. And IRIS is open source, so if, if you actually wanted to see how these things work and get involved, um, this will give you a practical uh, version um, of, of some of the things that we do in ontology. A small slice, but you'll at least uh, be able to actually see the code and have the code and, and see how it works. Uh, so with, with that, I'm going to switch over to the presentation called DARPA Tech uh, V7. And this uh, first thing to say about this presentation is that it was uh, put together last uh, August, um, so it's uh, somewhat out of date. But it does—it's kind of in a kiosk-style presentation, um, but it, that does make it fairly interactive. So you can see along the, the borders of the presentation, uh, the top top border has buttons that I can jump around to talk about an overview of Kalo, the project. Down the right sideline. Um, I can talk about Kalo functions, so what does Kalo actually do for me? Um, along the bottom, Kalo is really a learning program, so we're going to talk about the particular kinds of uh, learning that are, are most uh, important within the Kalo environment. And then finally, on the, on the left sidebar, we'll, we'll cover uh, Kalo results. Um, so a little bit about the system, how we test the system, um, mention a few research highlights, and, and there are some pointers to publications that are coming out of Kalo. So the, uh, I'm clicking. This is a, 
Unfortunately, in this presentation, it's much more difficult to say go to slide 17 because there are lots and lots and lots of slides. Um, but for people who are following along at home, I'm going to click on the, the goals button and go to the goals uh, slide. So what is Kalo? As, as, as Doug mentioned, it's, it's, it's one of the largest AI programs, maybe, maybe the largest AI program ever funded uh, by the U.S. Um, so it's a pretty big project with fairly ambitious goals. Uh, the focus is really to support uh, decision makers, and since this is funded by DARPA, you know they see decision makers as, as military commanders. Um, so to support decision makers and other people who are dealing with complex situations in life, um, so that includes people I think like you and me, um, and and to to do this by using learning as the key focus. So where today's systems are quite brittle um, and are coded to behave in a certain way and do a certain thing when it hits an expected situation, uh, the idea about Kalo is to put a system in place that has some knowledge and has some capabilities, but main focus is not to build a, a project to do any particular thing, but we want to field a system that has the ability to acquire new knowledge and new abilities, what we call in the wild. Um, and the thought that is that if, if less, less of this is programmed in this hard-coded software-style way but actually learned, um, and if it's a cognitive system that knows a little bit more what it's doing and why as opposed to just executing blindly instructions, then this could really change uh, the way software is built and makes uh, systems that are much more adaptable, much more flexible in a variety of, of unexpected situations. And of course, there have been learning programs uh, funded by uh, DARPA before, but one of the kind of new angles on this is rather than funding particular sort of stovepipe projects in, in learning and reasoning and perception, in dialogue, in representation, reasoning, and planning, uh, in vision, etc. Um, the goal of Kalo is to bring all of these fields together into one program, so we have people working in all of these areas, uh, and to actually build one integrated system. And the that one hypothesis is that learning algorithms placed in vivo inside of a system that can communicate, can reason, can plan, uh, can react. Um, will will be there'll be so much more capabilities that the learning algorithms can can make use of and can leverage that it should be the hypothesis says much more impactful than just doing learning uh, in the lab with a set of curves and a, and a lot of kind of offline data. So the the idea of Kalo is really to take learning, put it inside of a system that that has these human-like capabilities, and let learning happening there. Um, so I'm going to skip over the quote slide and go uh, to the team. So this is the year two picture. Um, you'll see in a minute that Kalo's in year three, so we actually have some new team members who are not listed here, but this will give you an idea of the project. Um, so Kalo is uh, somewhat in contrast to how DARPA has funded projects before, um, where they'll give many, many teams lots of little sub-projects and there's sometimes a system integrator, but uh, in this case, SRI can really be thought of as the prime for the entire program. Um, and uh, as you see, the uh, Kalo uh, in the slide, Kalo has two 
uh, co-PIs, so Bill Mark, who's, who's the VP of the Information and Computer Sciences Division at SRI, and Ray Perro, who's leading the AI Center here at SRI. Um, they're the PIs on the project. And within the SRI management team, uh, David Israel plays the role of chief scientist. We have uh, Jeffrey Davids and Jim Arnold focusing on evaluation, and, and actually not doing the evaluation, but more uh, interacting with the external evaluator uh, person, who you'll hear about more about later. And then my role is, is the title is officially chief architect, um, but really my, my role is to try to pull an integrated system together and make sure that uh, we can field it, we have release schedules. Um, so there's a little bit of, I can uh, have a little bit of suggestions to the different people, uh, um, the researchers on Kalo about what are the problems uh, in a Kalo space. And I also um, have some responsibility for making sure a system gets out that's, that's functional for users and, and testable. Um, and you can see uh, we've organized, again, this picture's a little bit, uh, a little bit old, but um, we've organized the research activities um, in uh, these kind of various what we call technical focus centers. So one on learning, one on reasoning and action, one on multimodal dialogue, cyber awareness, and physical awareness. Um, we have um, uh, leaders for each of those TFCs who come from various places on SRI. And there are many universities. I think we have 28 subcontractors to SRI, mostly universities, but a few commercial companies um, who participate within these various um, uh, high-level areas. So, so one thing I just want to say is, as I'm going on, if, going along, if there are particular questions, feel free to to interrupt as we go because I think it'll just be harder to save them and, and ask questions later. I'm now going on to uh, the timeline slide, timeline button. Um, so, Kalo is. Uh, hopefully a five-year project. It's scoped to be a five-year uh, project. Um, when this slide deck was done, we were just completing or nearing the completion of year two. Um, as of today, we're actually about halfway, a little bit more than halfway into year three of Kalo. And the way that, um, so there's a few things on the slide. One is, uh, I, in the very early part of the project, to sort of set a pace and get going, we had very rapid release schedules every six weeks. Um, and then we settled into a yearly pace where there are four releases a year. Um, the first release is usually an infrastructure release. The second is uh, an alpha release. The third release of the year is the major uh, results for that Kalo year. And then the fourth release is sort of a patch and getting ready for uh, year four. And, and kind of the summary results, um, around years. In year one, we had uh, a year one system, which is what I call sort of the, the big honking demo. Um, it was demonstrated on stage, maybe not as big as Doug Engelbart's uh, 68 demo, but still I thought it was pretty impressive nonetheless. We had something like 11 different machines running, um, 600, more than 600,000 lines of code, uh, written in about 10 different programming languages, contributed by the uh, 22 universities and institutions we had, all put together in by, by a lot of bailing wire at the time into a system that was able to perform the Kalo functions and be demonstrable on stage. So that was a big accomplishment. 
and we had what we called a finger exercise learning test in year one. In year two, uh, the challenge was to take this this huge system that had only been won in, in you know in entirety one time on stage at the end of the year one. It took something like 45 minutes to just start it up, all the pieces, and get them all working, et cetera. But the goal in year two was to take this huge system. Um, we wanted to not only keep the functionality, but make it robust and hardened, add new functionality, and make it available, uh, put it on people's desktops so that they could actually use it as part of their everyday life. Ed, um, Adam, could you explain uh, finger exercise a, a bit more? Yes, so finger exercise is a term where it, um, you, you'll learn a little bit more about how we evaluate Kalo. And in, in year two, we had to do what we call a, you know, a full uh, Kalo test evaluation where the entire Kalo system was analyzed and evaluated by evaluators. So it was on the real system live. What we, what we mean about finger exercise was it was kind of an offline, separated, um, test that was not directly hooked up to the Kalo system because we didn't really have a, a functioning in the wild Kalo system at the time. But the, the focus was to actually prove that Kalo researchers could do, you know, cutting edge research. And the, and the area was sort of on uh, co uh, this kind of relational and co uh, learning in a collective classification approach, and they were able to show that they could do better on certain prediction tasks than the best, uh, best methods like support vector machines, et cetera. So, so finger exercise, it was kind of a, uh, a small offline exercise um, that demonstrated uh, you know, that we had great learning people on the project and sort of got us ready for the full Kalo evaluations, which you'll hear more about. Um, so timeline, so in year two, we had to actually produce a real system, and we took the full, what we call the Kalo test, um, which, which is a test of learning. Um, it's a test of, you can think of it as uh, Kalo is your personal assistant. This is going to be a personal assistant that helps you manage your busy life. It's going to learn from your interactions who's, uh, who's important, what do you work on, what are the relationships between these people. Uh, what kind of tasks do you perform? It learns both from when you give permission that it joins, uh, it can watch you in a cyberspace, um, and it can watch you in a physical space. And through all of these interactions, as much like a human assistant as we can make it, Kayla is going to learn things. And then the test is basically going to be analogous to giving um, a kind of like an SAT or an achievement test in an administrative assistant sort of domain covering the functions that you see on the side of the screen, such as organize and manage information, prepare information products, uh, and so forth. Um, but this is a test that will be given to the system, not uh, a human system pair, but literally, Kayla will spend time with you, will learn things, and, and the test will evaluate how well is it doing and how much is learning contributed to its performance. And also in year two, we had a finger exercise related to transfer learning, which you'll hear a little bit more about. And then this year in year three, transfer learning will become part of the official Kalo test. So you can sort of see the timeline strategy is that we have one primary test, but we'll also, often while we're developing capabilities, we'll do a, 
an, an incremental finger exercise test uh, as the real system becomes enabled and able to, to run a full, full test. Okay, I'm clicking on uh, the next slide, military transition um, button. I'm not going to say too much about this. Um, Kalo is in the office domain, and this has been a real pleasure that, uh, at least for me, that we've been funded by DARPA, and so the first users really are the researchers and the scientists and the software engineers who are developing Kalo. Um, so I've, I've been using Kalo every day for as my work environment and assistant for over a year now. Um, but uh, DARPA is funded uh, from a military perspective, so we need a story about how, how Kalo work, which is really happening just in universities and, and, and the target audience is university members and SRI uh, researchers and project managers and software developers. Um, how this could, could actually transition potentially one day to the military. So the slide shows Kalo today, we spend time doing uh, office research where we have busy tasks and we're dealing with people and information and there are crises of various sorts. And in the future we'll focus on military domains. Um, at the end of year two we had done a few things. Um, one is we put together kind of a concept video where we had um, on how Kalo functions could impact uh, the military uh, situations and scenarios. But it's only a video. Uh, we also performed some data collection uh, at the Naval Postgraduate School um, where we uh, could allow Kalo to do some initial learning in, in the types of activities and spaces uh, that, that they were performing. And this was in sort of a command and control style environment. And we have some ideas about uh, how Kalo learning can get into the command post of the future, which is uh, a formerly DARPA-sponsored project that's now actively being used in, in, in quite a dramatic way and to good effect uh, in, in Iraq. So that, that's kind of, this is uh, sort of the obligatory slide of, you know, even though we're working in kind of an office domain and sort of a, a busy person domain, there are plans for how this could potentially transition to a military context. Um, and in year three, we've been doing more. We've been engaging with more uh, military groups and in a more active way. So, so again, this, these slides are a bit um, out of date. But. So I'm now clicking on uh, the Kalo Functions label. So it should bring up a slide called Kalo Functions. Um, and here it gives an overview of the six main types of things that Kalo will do for you. So they are organize and manage information, prepare information products, observe and mediate interactions, monitor and manage tasks, schedule and organize in time, and acquire uh, and allocate resources. So this is, this is sort of how, you know, what Kalo does um, uh, gets kind of grouped into these categories and also the evaluation and the test focus on these general areas. I'll say a few words uh, about each one of these. Um, the first, first, I've just clicked on the Organize and Manage Information button. Um, so the idea uh, is as the user works with their office systems, their calendars, their files, their web pages, um, their uh, email, um, their tasks, their projects, people, Kalo is going to try to, you know, with the user's permission, 
will be able to see this information and will try to build the underlying relational model of the user's world. So if you, you contrast this with something like Microsoft Outlook, Outlook has tasks and contacts and email and calendar appointments, but there is no rich model. There's no physical way in Outlook to say, this person works on that task, or this person is the manager of that person. And, and this file is, was presented at a meeting uh, that's relate with a deliverable for this. So in this space, you can imagine uh, what, we, uh, what we have is an ontological structure um, and, and learning algorithms that help the user kind of take the model that I carry around in my head. I know what projects I work on and who works on which projects and in what role and who's important, et cetera. But I'm never going to take the time to actually code that up myself. I'm not going to say that it would be too much to say this email is related to that project or this file was the author, of, you know, authored by this person. You know, I'm not going to take that time. So what happens is Kalo needs that representation. It can leverage all of that, that, that organizational knowledge I carry around in my head. Um, and so it uses machine learning with a little bit of feedback from the user when, when he can get it, and it will create this model. And then this model becomes actually useful for the user. So if I didn't actually have to type it all in, it really is nice to organize my email you know, by project or um, be able to see the high-priority tasks related to this particular meeting and things of that sort. Um, so, so the main... So the main focus of this organize and manage information is to really to build up an ontological model of instances of all of the people, places, files, documents, web pages, et cetera, and then, and then drive value um, from, that, from that piece, both from an end user perspective, but also all of the other functions uh, can leverage this information, um, you know, th this kind of rich model of the user's world um, in, in trying to do whatever the things that it does. So that, that's kind of the organized managed information project. So IRIS, which uh, I mentioned is something I'll demonstrate later, uh, fits squarely into this uh, function. I probably won't have time to demonstrate any of the other categories, so you'll, you'll, you'll get a lot more about this, this particular area. Um, I'm now clicking on the bullet, uh, prepare information products. So we actually have a few bits of functionality in this functional area. Um, the first is Kalo puts together a prep pack. So the idea is for a particular meeting, or given all sorts of different contextual situations, Kalo will try to gather the information that you need uh, to have either at your fingertips or to have read or prepared for in that meeting. So, so you know, so the idea is just before you go to the meeting. Kayla will learn what kinds of documents, what kinds of files, what kind of emails you typically visit and need um, to bring in, and they'll have them ready for you so you can just say, oh, yes, uh, here's that email I was trying to find, or here's that PowerPoint presentation I was, was looking for. Can I ask a question? Please. You say um, it will learn that. Do we have to... Do you have to somehow put the naming on those files in a certain way that it learns it? So learning happens in multiple different ways, and again, I may be able to demonstrate some of this. So a lot of the logic that goes on behind the scenes about is a particular file relevant for a meeting can actually leverage the learning that came from the first bullet. 
So I might know that this meeting has, has six people as attendees, and somehow these people actually, I know that they all work on a particular project. And this project has a bunch of keywords associated with it, kind of that's been able to figure out from other files and emails that have been associated with that project. And, and so when I'm considering a particular file, I can do so in the context of um, who are the people, what do they work on, what are their roles, what do I know about the particular project. Um, and, and then there's also a lot of contextual pieces. I can see a trace of what the user's been browsing on recently. I have extraction technology that pulls out agenda um, from emails and tries to associate them with meetings. Um, so, so there's a lot of different underlying learning that it then shows up in the particular end user interface, which you're seeing here, um, where it says this particular email it thinks belongs in the prep pack for a meeting. And then after all of that, the user can say, yes, I agree. If he wants to, he can either open it and read it. So that counts as a success to Kayla, like, aha, I put it at his fingertips and he actually used it. Um, I can also give feedback and say, no, this is really, I have no idea why you ended up putting this, this uh, file or appointment or web page. And, and as the user gives that feedback, um, Kayla will learn from that and try to adjust uh, all of the different information that is coming together in order to come up with its end sol uh, solution. So for instance, we have different rankers uh, that are being combined in a certain way. And if, if, if one ranking system felt that the message should be included and another one didn't, and then all of a sudden the user says, no, it shouldn't have been included, not only does that ranker uh, try to learn from that experience, but the combining force that combines the multiple hypotheses from various parts of Kalo will learn that maybe this ranker isn't such a good uh, predict, uh, predictor in certain situations, and will learn from that, maybe give it a, a lesser, lesser weight to its um, suggestions in the future in this situation. So I don't know if that answers the question, but a lot of learning goes un along under the scenes with no or very little user interaction. And at the end result level, the user can say, yes, I agree, and no, I don't agree. And then Kayla will scramble and do its best to figure out, oh, no, well, what does that mean? And what do I need to revise? How do I revise my beliefs, et cetera? Thank you. So I'll just mention, again, these slides are a little bit old. We have another uh, fairly high-level Kalo functionality in this prepare information products a domain. I may show it to you a little bit later as part of the demo. But basically we call it Doc Assist. And the notion is, you know, prep packs are great. It's really a form of contextual search. And lots of companies are doing search like Googles and Blinks and things of that sort. But there are really, you know, two reasons to, to you know, to search for something. One is because you just want to have it to read. And the other is you actually are trying to find something because you're in the process of putting together a new document or a new something, and you want to steal some text or grab a slide or do something of that sort. So Doc Assist uh, tries to use, lear to use learning not only to help you find information at the right time, put it at your fingertips, and prepare that prep pack, but it will actually help you build new presentations. So the driving use case is Kalo, I want to put together a new presentation on uh, ontology. Um, it's for a technical audience, 
Uh, I want to use lots of graphics. Um, don't need any equations. Uh, it should be about you know, uh, an hour presentation. And so maybe you have you or your colleagues have lots that you have access to have lots of documents in this space, and Kayla will start to learn what is the template for such a, a presentation. What are great candidate slides that would fit into this presentation? And in a fully automatic way, given kind of that level of description, the goal is to have Kalo put together uh, a candidate presentation with lots of options. So it'll come up with the outline, and for each outline step, it'll say, here are sub-slides, for instance, that I think are most relevant to your needs. And the user can adjust the outline, add categories, delete categories, select the best candidate that were proposed for Kalo or, or proposed new ones. And throughout this whole process, Kalo will help, uh, will, will learn how to help the user better actually make new documents such as PowerPoint presentations. So that, that's something we're working on this year in year three, and it's coming along pretty well. Um, the third functional area is observe and mediate interactions. So interactions between humans. So humans communicate a lot, and can Kalo play a role in this? Um, so there's really two major initiatives in this, this space. One is one way humans communicate are uh, through email. And Kalo, using, leveraging, again, the information it knows about your life, uh, will do its best job to help you manage your email. So it'll do summarizations for the emails. It'll try to uh, determine whether you need to reply to a particular email or not. Um, it'll try to figure out uh, what projects the emails are related to or what uh, tags, urgency, or things like, you know, um, you know maybe this is a family-related project, what, how, the, how the email fits into your, your life structure. Um, uh, uh, Kalo will track what we call speech acts. So speech acts come from speech act theory, and the notion is you have basically verbs and nouns, kind of primitive verbs and nouns. So I may do things like I might request a meeting or request a deliverable or inform you of uh, a, a change. Um, and you might, if I send you a request for a meeting, you may respond with a reply, um, you know, affirmative, reply, you know, tentative, reply, you know, deny. And the note, and and that limits the space. So as we're having this communication back and forth, if I ask you for something and you counter-propose and, you know, as we're doing this, you can actually learn more about what this email could be classified as being about at the sort of high level uh, if you can follow the threading of the conversation. Because if I ask you something, your response is probably going to be, const you know, constrained to one of a, a smaller set of, of possible speech acts. And, and being able to know that this is a request for a meeting or a, a, a postponement of a deliverable um, will let you kind of search and manage your, um, your, your messages and even perform actions as a result. So you might ask Kalo that for all meeting requests to go ahead and try to start scheduling and setting up the schedule of that meeting automatically for you by extracting out the proposed time, checking to see if you're available at that time, um, learning your preferences about uh, would you like to participate at that meeting or not, um, and uh, you know, and responding automatically, or at least maybe with some confirmation from the user, or fully automatically. So that's that's kind of one one area, which is sort of email and message traffic assistance. 
The other is we have a fairly ambitious um, uh, amount of work in what we call meeting understanding. And I spend a huge amount of time in meetings and a lot of information about my life and status and tasks and action items and who I am and, you know, all of this sort and who I interact with. A lot of this goes on in meetings. And again, if you give Kalo access to the meetings and, and you, you give him permission to attend, uh, he can actually learn uh, a number of different things. And, and meeting understanding is an incredibly hard problem because we're in open domain, speech recognition, there's vision, there's uh, multimodal fusion, but we have some advantages. One is that multiple mo multiple modalities do uh, help. So if I uh, write something on a whiteboard or a digital paper um, that I can now understand the words and I can match it up to things that I'm saying in speech, this may help actually tie the two together and, and understand what those spoken words might be. Um, or if I learn particular abbreviations um, are used in certain contexts, uh, I can learn those in the wild. New, new names for things that will be written and, and discussed or might come from a PowerPoint presentation. So by doing meeting understanding within a very rich model of, of not only the, the environment, both elect electronic and physical, but, but having access to very contextual and detailed information about not only who am I, but it has the prep pack for the meeting. So it knows the documents and the agenda and the information that's been pulled out for this specific context. And that, I think, um, we think, will, will enable a much better level of, of understanding and interpretation um, than just trying to do speech recognition in an open domain without having this rich context um, to come into it. And, and so within this piece, the, the main focus is on capturing action items and tracking action items, um, learning new vocabulary of different sorts. It produces sort of a record. It tries uh, of the sort of a transcript of the meeting, but annotated in various ways. Um, we have, uh, last year, we took a fairly heavyweight approach. So big, we had an instrumented room with heavy sensors, uh, numerous stereo cameras, and um, et cetera, a 360-degree camera that could you could plop down on the table and see all of the different participants. Uh, it would track the laptop positions and do things such as when I uh, look to, when I look to the left, um, the camera in the middle know uh, the physical position of the laptops, and then individual sensors on the laptops cameras would know who's in front of them. And so when I direct my gaze to a particular location in the room, Kayla will know who I'm addressing it to, who I'm talking to, um, things, things of that sort. So it was, but it was done, all of the meeting analysis was done in an offline mode uh, for the test. We had a, a number of machines that would crunch on the meetings for, for sometimes very long amounts of time. It would generate its best interpretation, and this was tested. Uh, a main focus for this year in Kalo Year 3 is to really get to usable meeting assistance, which means no instrumented room, just much lighter sensors, so a little snap-on third-party camera that you can just stick on, you know, webcam kind of thing that you can stick onto your laptop. Uh, we're still using close-talking mic, but um, it's kind of optional. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can try to get some of the conference phone audio uh, if that's the best that we have. Um, we're doing digital paper, which actually works pretty well, and 
Um, you know, it, it, it makes it useful for being able to take certain notes in the handwritten form, which we couldn't do last year. And we're trying to make the, the things, you know, much more real-time, uh, much, much lighter weight. So that, that's kind of a, a, a general overview of what we're doing on in uh, sort of meeting space, meeting understanding. Adam, may I ask a question? Please. Um, can I, um, how much does this have to integrate with um, existing systems? So, for example, if we're using Lotus Nodes and um, another software package for, um, say, collaboration, does Kalo ride below all of that, or is it a system that sort of subsumes all of those? So, uh, in my view, all of the systems that you use, Lotus Notes and PowerPoints and Outlooks and Mozilla's and all of these things, that's your work environment. And you need to give um, access. So, Kalo is seen as a, a cognitive assistant. So, it's okay. like a, imagine your assistant that you communicate that you've never met, but it's in another room and you communicate over the phone and through WebEx, et, et cetera. And so, Kalo will, uh, you will need to give sort of instrumentation hooks to Kalo that will, with permission, let them see what you're doing in Lotus Nodes, in Outlook, in Mozilla, et cetera. Thank you very much. But it's not Kalo directly. Okay. Thanks. Um, so I'm now clicking on to the Monitor and Manage Tasks uh, button on the Kalo functions. So basically, uh, the focus here is, is really on Kalo automating complex commands uh, for you. Um, things like when you purchase things, you have to route information through your, through your agency. Um, document preparation, there's all sorts of, you know, roles and, and allocations of, of different people who are going to, to work on subparts, but then they're laid on certain parts and you have to kind of have contingency plans. If a customer is coming, you need to put together perhaps a complex schedule for the day. You need to prepare presentations. So all of these are kind of big projects, or yeah, I can think of them almost as workflows, um, that you have a particular plan that you want to accomplish that involves lots of humans, and Kayla will try to assist you in that, both tracking it and performing automation steps wherever it can to help accelerate the process and improve your, your reasoning uh, in the space. Um, so this slide shows some of the, the, the technical components that really make up sort of Kalo's task management. And part of that, very related, so these last three of the six bullets are, are quite um, uh, interconnected. So as Kalo is focusing on this task management workflow automation, sorry, I'm on the schedule and organize and time page, um, uh, you know, these different situations are going to, to arise, and you need to be monitoring how long sh uh, should things take, uh, what do I do, you know, am I going to be able to finish in time, um, and to be able to help kind of allocate uh, different, this kind of the last part, acquire and allocate resources, but, but monitor the tasks, make sure things are happening in a timely fashion, find the best times to do or plan the best times to do certain uh, subparts of a, of a step, um, and, and all the while do learning on, on how long tasks take normally, so do we have a, a, an anomaly happening, um, to learn preferences of, of different users and to negotiate across the preferences of different users. So if I want to set up a meeting with you, 
my KLO is going to negotiate with your KLO, each one knowing and you know the availability of their respective owners and the preferences, and hopefully we'll come to some mutually satis uh, satisfactory uh, conclusion. And so the last slide is um, acquire and allocate resources. Um, two things that are highlighted here from the year two system. One is a sort of KLO can actually discover if you give it particular um, a particular thing that you're interested in acquiring or buying in this case, Kalo can discover a list of new vendors who sell that things. So we tried it with things like horseshoes, and Kalo will come back with a cleansed list of, of computers and you know vendors for various objects. Um, Kalo also learns reviews, so it does sort of semantic orientation um, to know that this vendor, from all the review information, which could come from review sites, but also newspapers and anything that's really said on the web about these uh, particular vendors, it'll try to score whether this is a positive or a negative review automatically. And it can give you a summary and, and do some learning about which, uh, which vendors, uh, you know, so who are the vendors out there, uh, how good are they. And then uh, after it's recommended a particular vendor selling perhaps a web, you know, selling on a website the products you're interested in, you can actually teach Kalo how to acquire uh, kind of a model of the vendor's website and literally do kind of drag and drop teaching of how to navigate the site, what information you're interested in. And then the next time when you say buy a, what I'm looking on the screen here, buy a laptop computer, it'll be able to go to Newegg, navigate the site, uh, extract the information and say, oh, you know, Newegg is having a particular deal on, on this thing that you're trying to buy. <coughs> And the last part, to so acquire resources, um, there's, it's kind of also part of organize and manage information, but Kalo does kind of learning of different, um, tries to acquire learning about uh, the people in your life, again, to help put together a prep pack. So if you're going to a meeting, you'll know their bio, and you'll know a little bit about them and their contact information. Um, and it does this by looking on the public web and looking on emails that you've received and looking on your desktop. Uh, for files and things like that, and tries to build a common model of, uh, you know, a little um, acquired knowledge for a person. So that that's kind of the the focus of what Kalo does. Um, I'm going to accelerate a little bit because um, I want to get to the second part of the talk, which is more ontology focused. But just briefly, so learning in the wild. I'm clicking on the learning in the wild button. Um, as I said, the idea is not to build systems that do things, but to particular things, but to build systems that you can deploy and then will actually learn in the wild to do those things. And what in the wild means is no code changes. Um, so if you put the system there, and, and we're going to test this in evaluation, is it smarter at the end of the day uh, without having written or compiled any, any new code? And to support the learning in the wild, um, in general, we have a learning platform. I clicked on learning platform button. Um, and it, it tries to be a framework, an integration framework, where numerous learning components um, that all have different predictions and the hypotheses and beliefs um, can start to communicate uh, and share information and leverage each other's information and maybe compete uh, over hypotheses, et cetera. Um, in order to start to build up the knowledge that, that's needed to, to do a, a learning 
Um, I, I clicked I clicked on the learning platform. There's under hood picture. I'm not going to talk about that right now. Um, in the text learning space, you know, this is some of the different types of things the learning framework supports. Um, we have clustering, you know, numerous clustering algorithms. If you've got one, we can plug it in. And with no code changes, apply it to new different types of data, so like maybe uh, email or slides or documents or things like that. Uh, association learners, so you can plug in various algorithms like Naive Bayes and SVN and things like that. And in contrast, one thing that's very interesting is that instead of, you know, if you're trying to classify whether an email is a meeting or related to some project, most learning algorithms will just have access to the text in that email. But because of the framework, when we receive an email, that email is sent by a person. And we can, the learning algorithm can follow the link of who that sender is and get to a very rich model of that person. What projects does he work on? What are what publications does that person have? What other emails um, that are related to particular projects or tasks have we seen before? So, you know, by plugging in a, a standard um, learning algorithm like Naive Bayes into Kalo, those learning algorithms with no code can access a wealth of information that, you know, normal offline learning algorithms wouldn't have because they would just get the plain old set of emails to classify. They wouldn't have this, this knowledge, um, and et cetera. There's a number of other kind of learning uh, type learning pieces. This is all in sort of the text learning space. Um, just a few words on transfer learning. This is actually a big deal in year three, and it was a minor focus in year two. We had a finger exercise on that. So the notion is, okay, we have a system that's able to learn in the wild new things with no code changes, um, but what would be really great is if I could take that learning and share it in other situations. Find certain types, different types of uh, learning uh, transfer. So I've um, clicked on, um, I've just hit the space bar and gone to the next part within the subsection. It says transfer learning two types. Um, so again, the, the, the goal of transfer, let me see if I say this. Transfer is to is not to learn something new, but to accelerate performance. If you if 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 your Kalo if you were able to share your Kalo learning with my Kalo, that could be a good thing um, because it's a whole lot more data. Maybe I've learned that a particular person is important, uh, or it could be a bad thing. Maybe you just do things completely differently than I do. So by kind of combining your knowledge uh, in um, with my data, that's actually going to hurt performance. And what we've done is we've come up with, we call a number of transfer-aware strategies. Um, so the algorithm itself in the wild needs to learn, okay, if you're transferring some new knowledge or data to me, it has to, it has to learn, do I, does, is this helping my performance or hurting my performance? So if, if, the, if your data is very similar to my data, it's a great thing to mix the two together. Uh, if, if they're different, it's actually going to hurt my performance. And if you just take uh, a very kind of naive approach to this, where you know here you can see I have no, uh, there's a curve with no training on A, um, and then you pass training between similar people, you learn much faster because you have a lot more data. And what you want to have is you have different people. You don't want you don't want differences 
to actually hurt you. And if you take a naive approach, um, you, you'll actually be hurt. If you, if you don't have algorithms that can adapt in the wild to if, if the data is similar or not, um, mixing in your knowledge and data with mine could actually, could actually hurt. So that, that's kind of the, the high-level goal of what we're trying to do with transfer learning. Um, and, and we have a number of initiatives uh, in this space. And then the final type of learning, which I'll highlight, also a much, uh, a much bigger deal um, here in Kalo this year. Uh, and, and it's kind of missing. One part is missing. So we want Kalo to learn new tasks, namely new actions and, and capabilities in the wild. And it's not highlighted in these slides, um, but we also want new concepts. And I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, how we do this. But you want Kalo to acquire new knowledge, be able to act on that knowledge and perform new automation tasks with no code changes. So that, that can happen through by observing the user. So maybe they see I do a particular thing in the same way, and I can detect that as a pattern and then propose this as sort of an automation sub-step. Um, maybe the user can, can actually demonstrate, Kayla, let me, let me show you how I do a particular task. Um, you can learn by discussion um, where you'll say, I'm going to tell you how I do things, or I'm going to do something but actually describe what I'm doing and why, a little bit of the rationale behind it. So it's a little bit deeper than just demonstrating where I perform the task. I can actually tell you what I'm doing and a little bit about why, and Kayla can learn from that. Uh, learning by instruction, um, there's some nuances on how that differs from this, but I won't go into it. And learning through execution, meaning Kayla actually performs something and it realizes, gee, every time I do that, it works, and every time I do that, it fails. So there's sort of learn. You could actually, through its own execution, try to to learn from that that space um, which parameters are impacting success and failure, and maybe which algorithms are working. So through kind of more of a reflective model, and we have people working in each one of these green boxes on this slide, task learning components in these areas, both kind of at this higher level types of learning, um, lower level. How do you dis the, the find the primitive tasks that are going to make up the more complex tasks, and, and how does this sort of all work together in a task learning framework. So, so those are highlights, again, from your two slides, of sort of the, learn, the ty certain types of learning that we're focusing on within, within Kalo. But really, every single researcher on the Kalo project, um, whether you're doing an image recognition or speech recognition or planning or reasoning, Everyone has to tie to learning because it's, it's, it's such the central theme uh, for Kalo. Uh, finally, um, on the left side, Kalo results. Um, so we have we do have a system that's deployable. I'm not going to go into it. Um, you'll see a little bit of part of it as a demo later. Uh, on that system, um, we we ran evaluations, or actually independent evaluator ran evaluations. The way it works is we have the six Kalo functions. So Kalo can, can generally do these things. And within a particular function, like prepare information products, the testing agency comes up with hundreds or I don't know, tens or maybe hundreds of SAT-like questions. So here's one um, related to prep pack. Select documents relevant to the event to which calendar entry is pointing. So there is kind of a problem. Gee, here is a meeting. You have all this context. What do you put in a prep pack? 
Um, and a lot of learning is going to have to go on to that because you, you can't hardwire that, that kind of information. Um, and then what happens is, so across hundreds of questions that span all six areas of Kalo function, <coughs> Kalo will be administered uh, this test. It'll come up with a score. And as you see on this slide, Kalo test protocol, um, the evaluator is going to try to, to measure how much learning in the wild, meaning learning with no code changes, has, has impacted the result. So the same test is given to kind of two versions of the system. Uh, first, the version that's had an opportunity to live with and learn from its user. And then secondly, the, uh, <coughs> all of the learned knowledge is ablated from Kalo. So it's, it's kind of the out of the box, I had just unwrapped the Kalo, but had never, it had never actually spent any time with me. And I gave the same question to the Kalo test, and you compare. <coughs> and this repeats every year. Over the five over the five years, and the goal is to end up with um, some curves, kind of like this, where the curves measure. Um, this is the baseline or the out of the box Kalo score on this comprehensive test, and the learning score should be higher. And as you see, as the curves go over time, the delta or more and more of the score should be due to learning in the wild. Um, not to engineering or any engineered methods. And one thing that's worth noting is that, you know, there are a lot of people who train learning algorithms offline. So like a speech recognition system could be thought of as a learning algorithm because you give it a whole bunch of sentences and a whole bunch of audio and it, and that are kind of uh, correlated. <coughs> and it will build up the HMM models for how to recognize um, text in that, in that space. But we consider that offline learning, something, something done in a lab and doesn't actually count. It would count as part of the baseline uh, Kalo. So in the final two bullets on the overview of Kalo, it's kind of a little bit over time. So there's a bunch of different uh, research highlights. I think we've talked about many of them. By year two, there were over 150 different Kalo publications of kind of aspects of Kalo um, by Kalo researchers. And and you can go out, um, go out and find out, uh, you know, a fair amount about at least pieces of Kalo. Um, so that's kind of a Kalo overview. Are there any questions? And if not, I'm going to switch to the uh, more ontology issues. Wow, wonderful! Thank you, Adam. Um, Adam, I was going to ask a question, if you don't mind. Please. Um, what degree is the learning black box learning, and what degree is the learning uh, um, clear box learning? Oh, by the way, this is Dave Whitten. Uh, I.e., uh, when when Kalo learns something, are you able to actually look at the way that what it's learned by modifying a transcript or something like that, or viewing a transcript, or is it mostly internal structures that that have no visible uh, human understandable component? Right, so there's no kind of blanket answer for that. Um, so so one, one part is many of the things that Kalo learns is visible to the user, and we do, we do have some ability for explanation where you can actually ask uh, Kalo, why did you think this, or what kinds of things did you learn uh, in the past? Um, so so, so there, it, it's hard to say, but in general, from a Kalo perspective, from a user perspective, 
they don't really want to know that much about how it did it or, you know, they just want to know what's your recommendation, how confident are you, and do I believe you? So, so there is, there are examples of kind of, you can see elements of what Kayla learned because, for instance, when it comes up with um, that prep pack example, it'll suggest things and you can say, yes, I agree or no, I don't agree. And if you wanted to, you could drill down in some cases to understand a little bit more about why it's proposing. But, but generally, we, we feel a user doesn't want to spend that amount of time. So certain explanation capabilities, but it, they're not used too, too much in Kalo. Uh, I have a question, Adam. Peter? Yes. Uh, how, how much is the learning optimized for certain processes or for certain workflows? For example, I mean, a lot of this is related to office work. Uh, for example, I'm a chess player, and if I say, Kalo, I mean, follow my games of chess, I mean, does it make Kalo a better chess player at the end of the right. day? So um, we'll actually get a little bit into that in this next presentation, but but clearly, learning algorithms need a, a representation, an ontology on which to reason about. And a lot of the, as I had mentioned, a lot of the learning algorithms can be applied with, with little code, little or no code changes to kind of new ontologic, you know, new problems as they're specified in the ontology. Um, but you know, if, if, if there's a question about helicopters, and I know nothing about helicopters, um, it, it, you know, Kayla will not have uh, a chance to really work on that until it does know about helicopters. And so this year we do have uh, some work in concept learning where it is trying to acquire, Kayla's trying to acquire automatically and then semi-automatically new concepts that then um, learning algorithms can can be applied uh, easily. But, you know, so uh, it's, I don't know if that's quite an answer to your question. We are focusing kind of in these six uh, six areas, which are kind of office, sort of office-related space, but it applies into a wide definition of office, including military and, and executives mm -hmm. and others. Um, and, and one of the main things DARPA wants to know is how far can you push it without any code changes can I apply it to new domains, new tasks? Can I teach it new things? Can I? So, so I, I don't know if that, that quite answers it, but we are trying to. Uh, one of the whole tenets of Kalo is that you can put a system that doesn't necessarily know how to do an X, um, but it can learn without code changes how to do an X through observation, through interaction, through reflection. Um, and, and so we're trying to head that way and push those envelopes as far as we can. That, that's very helpful. Thank you. Okay, so I'm now moving to the second uh, presentation. Um, and I'm going to talk just a little bit about ontology management and maintenance um, within, within Kalo. So the uh, slide four shows just kind of a review of the Kalo functions. And there's this little blue box in the middle, which is sort of a high-level picture of the Kalo uh, architecture. I'm just going to bring that up for a minute because I'm going to speak about a few of the um, elements. 
So as, as one of the questions came back, you know, how much do you need, to, how much is your office environment, my Lotus, my Mozilla, Kalo or not Kalo? The way I see it is Kalo is an automated assistant that's kind of this, the blue boxes and, and uh, KB, you know, the blue boxes in a sense are Kalo. The office environment can be generating events and knowledge uh, into the space that, that Kalo has access to and then can start to reason about. But this is generally how we've um, organized at a high level. We have kind of task management, which can be thought of what can Kalo do and how does it do it. Knowledge management, which is what does Kalo know, kind of the knowing and doing. Cyber management, which is kind of reasoning and connecting to uh, cyber environments like an office environment such as Iris or Outlook. And, and um, both local and remote, so such as the, the, the full web. Uh, physical, so there's a, numerous sensors that are going to be made available for Kalo. And then there's interaction components. And so on slide six, ontology and Kalo's architecture. Ontology really is um, our attempt to try to hold all of the probably now hundred various components, hundreds of components, and learning algorithms and systems and AI uh, mechanisms together. And here specifically are um, a few of the components and what they do. And they're all, these are all ontology-based. Um, so query manager, um, so data can come from many different places. There's learning algorithms. There's events happening in the world. There's the user space of data. Um, there are reasoners of different sorts who, who have facts and opinions. Um, there's task management, which knows what things it's working on. So Query Manager provides uh, kind of a, a delegated hook. Um, it's the single place where if you want to ask what Kalo knows about a particular um, place, you can express your query, and Query Manager will find the right component or knowledge source or knowledge sources uh, route the queries to them and, and combine their answers, both kind of reasoning sources and just data sources. Um, it uses a PIF uh, as the, the query mechanism, but the PIF, the actual uh, uh, predicates that make up the PIF expressions are based on the Kalo ontology. So, so this is a, an ontological view into Kalo's data and reasoning. Uh, publish and subscribe event framework, so as as events happen, either internal events, like Kalo thinks something, or Kalo has just performed some action, as well as uh, user events. So how Kalo sees, if I click on an email, or, or go to a calendar, or move an email to a folder, or open a file, those are all user events that Kalo wants to learn from. And those events are also uh, represented in the Kalo ontology. Um, we have a publish-subscribe framework so that different components can actually register interest in certain types of events and receive that. Can I ask, is the ontology available externally? The question is, is the ontology available externally? Mm -hmm. So parts of it are, and I'll say a few more words about that in the next slide. Mm -hmm. uh, episodic memory um, is kind of recording of those events. So as I said, events are ontology objects. Uh, task interface registry. These are all of the actions that Kalo knows how to perform, and they have ontological uh, representations as well. Um, so it's really the interface. It's not the full representation of the task itself, which has um, 
we're moving into kind of an ontology view, but it's really what can, what is the entry point to this task, um, and when is it applicable, uh, et cetera. So for all the tasks that Kayla knows how to perform, and new ones that are learned in the wild all get recorded. And if you know task interface, if, if I come up with a brand new task in the wild, and if tasks are, are represented in the ontology, this is an example of concept learning, because I need to extend the actual structure um, of the ontology to represent this new this new task. Um, dialogue management. So we have um, some work, particularly from James Allen uh, at University of Rochester, where he's been working closely with the ontology. Yes. Sorry. Uh, the ontology people to, to do reasoning across the intent um, of what a user says when they have different utterances. Um, and also to help generate interactions back to the user. Uh, the IRIS office environment, you'll, you'll see IRIS in a, in a few minutes, but um, IRIS is the, uh, is kind of the outlook or the Lotus Notes. It, it's the tools that I use, but they've been instrumented in such a way that with the correct permission, Kalo can actually query all of the data that I have in those systems um, and also see the events. And, and IRIS adds this kind of uh, knowledge base beneath the third-party normal applications users use every day. Uh, MOKB, which stands for Meeting Ontology Knowledge Base. When I'm in a meeting, all of those events about I looked at this person and I nodded my head affirmative and I said this particular piece, so the low-level actions and then the higher-level inferences about those actions are recorded um, as, as facts or events um, in the Kalo ontology as, as well. And then finally, the Kalo test infrastructure. So I mentioned this independent evaluator is going to pose questions uh, to Kalo. They'll, they'll have a setup phase where they say, imagine or say, you know, here's some certain things. Uh, there's this person and he, he's not available on Tuesday and, or you have a meeting and you're supposed to have Joe, Jim, and Bob, but Bob can't come. Now, question, what do you do? Do you schedule a reschedule a meeting, have the meeting anyway, or cancel a meeting altogether? So a question like that would be phrased as queries and, and setup rules um, expressed in the Kalo ontology. So these are some of the architectural components and, and how they're actually using the ontology. Uh, on slide seven, a few words about the ontology itself. So it all starts from something called uh, Core Plus Office, or CLIBE. So CLIB was created by at University of Texas, um, and it's a library of, of generic, composable, reusable knowledge components. So it's, it's something, and so right now I guess there's something like 857 classes. Um, it's not Kalo specific; it existed before Kalo. Um, it's been used for a number of projects, including RTF, Halo, and Aura. And there are here are a few example classes about what the core ontology contains. So it knows the notion of a person, an organization, a message, a time interval, things of that sort. Why was that ontology, core ontology chosen as opposed to, say, a flake which has a lot more in it? Um, that's an interesting question. I think when Kalo started at the, at the beginning, um, we, uh, as we needed to bring in different participants, and we did, uh, we identified kind of leaders in, in the various areas, the people that we thought would be best 
suited to understand, you know, for learning, for reasoning, for action, for uh, et cetera. Who was the lead on the core ontology? Um, Tom Garvey was in charge of reasoning and action TFC and made recommendations. Um, and Benet uh, Chowdhury, who I think on this call, um, was actually kind of leading initial ontology subgroup. But from their surveys, they invited a number of participants, including uh, Bruce, uh, Bruce Porter and Ken Barker and people at UT. And I, I think, Benet, are you on the line? And do you want to say any more about C-Live versus uh, Tyke? Yeah, so I'm online. And um, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a different philosophy. Uh, you know, C-Live is based on the philosophy that um, uh, you want to start with very small number of representations and want to grow your knowledge base out of that, whereas in psych, you know, you find all imaginable kind of distinctions. It's, it's you know, we, we have evaluated both of them in, in the RKF project. We, ha we had evaluated both psych and the uh, core ontology. You know, in the ontology land, as you may know, sometimes it's very hard to draw very cut-and-dry conclusions. You know, there are just two different approaches to cutting the cutting at the domain, and uh, it's it's not very clear if you can conclusively decide which one would be the best fit. Uh, in in any case, I think uh, for the for the domain specific work that was needed for uh, the Kalo project, it was pretty clear that a uh, lot of what we needed would have to be built anyways, regardless of whether we start from um, from Psychoparentology or something, or or coreontology. Uh, one nice thing which we liked about the coreontology was that um, it is uh, inspired and directly grounded in some of the uh, primitives that you would need for understanding language. And uh, in Kalo, there is a very strong dialogue component that is being done by um, James Allen, and it seemed like a very good fit for that. And also some of the work we've done for the uh, for the meeting understanding work. Um, in in the, for the meeting understanding work, they developed uh, like a communication model, and it's a there there are a couple of papers on that subject, and it it was really neat how quickly they were able to take the core components in in CLIB and construct a model of communication. Uh, will, will the um, references uh, to these? Um, uh, is there anything available online that that, that one can inspect? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, I, I'll be happy to send out references on yeah. uh, what has been written on how we use this ontology. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you say there's a language and uh, what the uh, linguistic component and uh, what a uh, dialogue component. That, that would be quite interesting. Okay. Right. Uh, and the details. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I don't want to take all the time here, but I'm happy to interact with people offline if you want more details. Yeah, the, is the right in terms of um, ontology for Kalo in more detail than I'm going to go into. Uh, Vinay is really the best person to interact with. Okay. Yeah, it, it's just, this is Dave Witten. I'm just confused because Kalo, or sorry, the um, the page talking about CLib specifically mentions that it was the cornerstone of RKF, but I know RKF was a psych project, so that is kind of confusing. Well, no, that's not quite true. Actually, in RKF, there were two big teams. Uh, Psych was one of them, and SRI was the other one. And um, so the core, core ontology was developed as part of the SRI effort. 
during RKF. Okay, so if, if, since RKF had two splits, then you already were on the other split. Right, right. Okay, so again, the, the actual core ontology, if you go to the links on this page, you can actually, they have a browser, you can get, I'm sure, a lot more information um, and kind of see what's in there, et cetera. Um, CLI, so we took the core, um, and there was already um, a, a subset called Office, which has been adapted um, fairly substantially for the, for the Kalo um, project. Um, so so the, 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 main, the main beginnings of the Kalo ontology is core plus Office. Um, all of this is implemented in a system called KM, called Knowledge Machine. Um, and there's a link here about, about Knowledge Machine, so it's a frame-based uh, reasoning system. Um, one, one note is, you know, both CLIB, the core and office and others make, make uh, fairly heavy use of roles, uh, which reduces the number of slots that you need um, for particular classes, allows binary relations, and, and things in that area. Okay, so, so that's kind of the beginning of, that's sort of where we started, uh, and, and, and the, the main primary part of the Kalo ontology, there's a few other sub-pieces that you might learn about in a minute, but here are some of the specific, what I, you know, somewhat unique ontology management issues. So one is Kalo is a huge project. We have something like, I think, more than 300 people working on it this year from 28 different places. Um, and you get very many different representation uh, needs and inference needs and tool needs. So some people want to use OWL and, um, you know, there's a lot of leverage around OWL right now and a lot of tool support with things like Protege and Jenna and uh, et cetera. Um, so I'll talk about some of the things that we did in this area. Um, also, Kalo is a five-year project, so of course the ontology is going to change over time. And, and so it makes it a challenge for if I change the ontology, which is in a sense data in some form, how do I maintain my code? So if I was calling a class something and my code was referring to it in a different way and I change the name or I delete a property, how do I know what's affected in this massive Kalo system? So how do I maintain consistency of code data and docs? So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, Kalo, the, the Kalo or the PAL project which, which sponsored Kalo was originally called the Enduring Personal Cognitive Assistance and, and Kalo and PAL still have this uh, need. So over time it's going to be learning things and if every time I change the ontology I have to wipe out all data instances that I've acquired and that I know about, um, that's going to be unacceptable. Um, so you, you can't have every new ontology release that changes the structure, the schema of the data, you, you can't just wipe out the data. So that, that's um, uh, because too many users are, are using it in, in their real life. Uh, concept and task learning are big points of emphasis. So that means the ontology, um, both the instances but also the structure, uh, can change in the wild, not only by the user, and, and you have to assume he's not an ontologist, but also by Kalo. And Kalo is really not an ontologist because, you know, as smart as we try to make it, things Kalo comes up with are not always certain and correct. Um, so what can you do about that? And finally, uh, the last bullet is uncertainty is a re reality. So Kalo is doing its best to make guesses and, and truths in the world, but how do you update 
the state of the world when you're not 100% sure that this is true and how do you manage consistency about this when there are just so many different unreliable predictors. So I'm going to talk a little bit about detail. So the first, the first bullet is we definitely wanted to start with the structure and the language of KM. And KM is uh, great in certain ways in that it, it supports reasoning systems and it is this very kind of reusable generic set of, you know, small set of uh, high-level components. But there are a lot of people who wanted to use OWL. Talk about that briefly in just a second. And also the first two bullets. So what we do actually is we start with KM, which is the master ontology, and we export we have export mechanisms to OWL, and then a lot of people can actually use that to use Protege, et cetera, to view and manipulate and do things. Uh, so we, we start from an OWL representation um, and, and do things in various ways. And I'll tell you what in just a second. And also keeping code and data in doc and sync, uh, I'll, I'll explain that uh, on slide, I guess it's slide nine. So this is a very complicated picture, but it's a, um, probably too complicated, but it will give a, a flow. So here's, for those two problems, here's what we do. We start with uh, CLive, uh, that kind of uh, written in KM. We've written OWL translators, and then that gives us CLive in uh, OWL. And there are a few specialized OWL ontologies, which we kind of fold into this, that, aren't, that we don't represent in KM. They, they, they are generally things like, what's a form representation that should show up in an iris display? And uh, cer certain things like that. So generally everything's done in KM, but there are a few extra uh, small OWL specialized uh, data stores that we represent in an OWL ontology. And we merge in, so here we get the Kalo ontology represented in OWL. From that ontology, uh, Class, we do a few different, a few different things. Um, so that that is the set of all classes that we could possibly use, in a, in a sense. But it's not the actual set of classes that I that I am actually using. So so maybe the CLive ontology has a notion for a helicopter, but that's just not something that I'm going to use in the ontology. So what we do is based off of this ontology. We create an ontology usage spec. Uh, we, a we actually code up that, that ontology documentation, in a sense, um, in OWL itself. So we have a documentation ontology, and we say, there, uh, I'm a particular learning component. Uh, I have these scenarios. So these are things that happen in my world. Um, so it, when someone clicks on an email, I'm going to take that email structure and, and harvest it and write it into the ontology uh, in this form, I'll put the subject over here and the, and the body over here, et cetera. So this describes um, when any component is going to actually read or write from the ontology, they need to describe that uh, in an ontology-based documentation format. And from that documentation format, we actually generate a number of things. So the first is what we call POJO. Uh, POJO stands for Plain Old Java Object which means from the, the OWL usage documentation or the OWL usage spec, we'll actually generate a class. So if I had a person and I had some component writes in his name and his uh, email address in various places, um, the POJO will create, will be uh, a single Java object that I can pass around, I can call setters and getters on, 
Um, and, and that behind the scenes, behind when I say set email, it will actually use the ontology structure and what we call binding path to say, well, a person doesn't really have an email. A person has contact information. So what I need to do when someone says set the work email of a person, I need to create a class uh, behind the scenes that's going to be a contact information of type work. And within that class, um, then there's going to be a network address. And then a network address is going to be of type email, things of that sort. So it, it gives kind of a high-level view um, that generates code, and when I'm instrumenting some mail program or, or something, I will bind to the actual, that generated class with the uh, fields and values and the, the hidden abstractions into where this actually is written into the ontology. And that way, if we ever change the ontology, we change a property name or, or something of that sort, when I compile my Java-based parts of Kalo, they'll physically break. They'll say, oh, compile error right here. Uh, field is missing, and, and that helps really maintain the consistency. Um, a second nice part of this, from the same ontology specification, we generate uh, HTML usage documentation. So here, not only can we view the, the full ontology using the KM browser, or an, we use OwlDoc to give the an Owl version of, of the full possible ontology, but we generate documentation that says exactly which fields in this very large space are used and in which way and under which scenarios, by which components. And that's all kind of linkable and browsable. And I'll, I'll be able to show you that um, uh, in just a minute uh, as well, if you like. Yeah, actually get that loaded up. Um, and then additionally, from that same spec, we, we generate uh, Query Manager domain files, so we'll know what data is actually being used by which components, and Query Manager can use that to optimize its routing algorithms. Uh, we generate helper functions for the testing program so that the tester can just say, what's the email of person, and doesn't have to expand that into get a person who has a network address or contact information of this type that has a network address but has an email address, et cetera. So, so from that uh, ontology-based usage documentation, um, we, we generate a lot of different files that help main cons maintain consistency. So that, that's enough for this particular uh, slide. So that generally addresses these first two bullets. The next issue is migrating acquired data instances forward through ontology changes. So as I said, I've, I've been saving all this ontology of events and data and people, and all of a sudden someone changes a field or adds a class or or does something, and we don't want to invalidate my current data store. So we've developed something called SOUP for a simple ontology update program. And what it does is it knows, uh, it, it keeps track of diffs. So it can take all, um, all ontologies and do diffs on them, and then you can build uh, translation mechanisms or kind of sort of like backward compatibility mechanisms for each of the diffs. Uh, between ontologies. And then what happens is when the user gets a new version, so maybe their, their data store is on version 6, and they, they finally get around to checking out a new version of uh, Kalo in their system, and that's version 10, Soup will take their data store, and, and the first time they run uh, on this new piece, basically run all of the patches to kind of forward migrate 
the raw data to the new version. And so that's that's very important for keeping us uh, for keeping kind of maintaining the you know the backward compatibility aspect of, of the ontology. And and finally, a, a, a fourth kind of high-level bullet related to ontology and keeping a consistent ontology during the evolution of a project. So we have this process I described before was really from an engineering point of release, you know, uh, perspective. So we have the Ocalo ontology, which then gets translated to OWL, and then OWL from OWL, we have the usage doc, which generates all of these wonderful files. But there's a problem in that now we're getting into concept learning, which means users and Kalo themselves can actually create new concepts and modify things in the actual ontology structure. So one question is, say I've added this new class, um, how do I rationalize this with an engineering release? Because maybe the next version of the Kalo ontology will have that class in it, or things, uh, things of that sort. And I don't want to, you know, I don't want, every time I get a new engineering release, I don't want to overwrite my changed version. So what we do is we keep all uh, ontology changes through concept learning in a, in a separate file from the main engineering uh, trunk. And we, we've, to date, we restrict the types of changes allowed, so you can add and do uh, renames. Um, we're not currently doing moves and deletes um, because those are a bit more complex to manage. Um, and, and so we have this, and, and then changes of the user can be proposed back uh, to more the engineering uh, concept concept. So they, the engineered ontology may actually uh, kind of get back recommendations for what, what classes and properties uh, might be added. Oops. Oh. Yes? Sorry. Um, so the, the next, um, ne last piece is how to validate KaloLearn changes. So I have a slide on slide uh, 11 related to Kalo concept learning. So the idea is the engineered ontology comes with a bunch of classes and properties, but Kalo can actually spend its alone time uh, going out on the web and, and looking at data sources and trying to actually expand that ontology. So it might learn new instances or new subclasses or new properties um, for various things um, by kind of doing automated analysis on the web. Um, but the problem is a lot of this is going to be somewhat flaky. So the way it works is it tries to build uh, a shadow ontology knowledge base, which is its version of what it thinks the world uh, looks like. Um, and it's going to harvest facts and build kind of new classes. Um, and then there's a validation uh, step during that process. Some of it's automated, and there's some, some interesting ideas around trying to leverage the masses through sort of a question and answering system. This is being done, I believe, at ISI, where um, it'll, it'll start to pose you, you get points and you play a game, so to speak, and it'll say, can you think of a new term of this, you know, or is a laser pointer, I think it might be a cat toy or an office one, which do you think it is? And it could be both, but certain people will choose one, other people will choose multiple, and, and you can build statistics that leverage kind of human knowledge and automated knowledge. Anyway, so in phase one, through automated and semi-automated uh, validation processes, an ontology is built, but that doesn't get into Kalo until Kalo has a need. So if all of a sudden the user is trying to buy something and it says, I want, give me reservations for a hotel with a pool, 
and it doesn't know about pools, it can then go query the shadow ontology, which is sort of its cache, and say, does pool look like a property of a hotel to you? And and um, and then Kalo connects the shadow ontology can come back and say yes. You can prompt the user to get their validation, and then the then the concepts or the properties will get added uh, to the Kalo ontology in this sort of separate uh, space, as I had mentioned. And the final issue I'm going to talk about here is kind of uncertainty across multiple sources. So, so currently, um, we have uh, various KVs on the project, which represent truth of some sort. Um, but there are all these different learning algorithms that think things. So when I click on an email, uh, Kayla will say, I think it's related to this project. But is it and isn't it? And, and maybe another algorithm thinks something different. It's related to a different product uh, project. And you get into these kind of credit assignment problems because I could say, if I if I think this, you know, it had these rules when it formed a prep pack that emails related to the project that are the same as the uh, appointment is for the project are good. And if I say no, this document's not good. Kayla has to kind of look back and say, well, gee, maybe it wasn't related to the project after all, or, or maybe the meeting wasn't related to the project, or maybe the rule that says uh, they have to be isn't good. And so you're really trying to, to maintain consistency in this very dynamic world. Um, so in year one, we had a very simple approach. We had a global KB of truth, um, so to speak, uh, where some algorithms wrote to it and some algorithms were just accessible by special API. So if I had my email classifier saying this email is related to a project, um, some of the classifiers would write to it, which would let me query, find all emails related to the project, and it would return it's true. Um, but lots of times it would be wrong. So I'd have faulty knowledge mixed in. Um, other times, I would, you know, a learning algorithm wouldn't write, so I wouldn't uh, get that. But maybe it was really right, and I wouldn't be able to do a query in the usual way and say find all emails related to project and actually have that learning algorithm involved. There's sort of a special mechanism. So year one, that we, you know, we kind of wrote to a KB. We had APIs. We kept hypotheses separate, but we weren't very consistent and wasn't very satisfactory. Year two, we started to at least keep provenance information. So if, for those that did write to a KB, we could record, was this a user saying it, or was this a learning algorithm saying it, and how confident were they, and what were their sources, and kind of a, a pretty rich structure where potentially you could do some reasoning about um, how valid uh, that data fact is and whether to include it or not. Um, and in year three, uh, what we've done is we've actually separated out from just having one KB to, to separate subgraphs in a KB. And each learning component has its own space. And then smart queries, I can say, well, I really want to include learning algorithms, or I don't, or only certain learning algorithms, or algorithms that have a certain hypothesis. And so all the information is kept in kind of lots of little places, and then you try to know which information to include in your query uh, or not. So that was kind of, that's kind of one thing we're doing this year. The second is we have a, a system which we call probabilistic consistency engine, which is really trying to maintain, it's based on sort of MaxSat algorithms. And its job is to create a global what Kalo believes at any moment repository. And as new information comes in uh, from lots of different learners, it's going to be 
trying to do trade-offs between the, the two. So an example would be if I get an email and it's related to a project, uh, the attachment on that email should also be related to the project. So maybe you'd have a rule like that. And then one predictor is trying to see email to project. Another predictor is trying to go from file to project. And that rule is kind of maintaining the consistency. So if I give feedback and say, no, this file is not related to the project, it can actually back kind of, kind of adjust the weights appropriately and downgrade um, separate algorithms in a certain sense. So it's, it's trying to maintain a, cons a global consistent state using sort of a just-in-time inference mechanism. Um, and we think that will really help uh, maintain sort of consistency across, across KLO's learning, uh, where it can actually have probabilistic uh, numbers associated with uh, reasoning rules. So that, those are kind of the ontology management and maintenance issues that I wanted to just kind of discuss sort of what, what our problems were and what we've been doing. Um, the last part of the talk, I'm going to just uh, mention IRIS, which is an open source um, uh, tool uh, that has little pieces of Kalo in it, uh, especially the open source is, is, is fairly small. But a lot of these concepts and mechanisms uh, are there. Um, you asked about the, is the ontology available? So the CLive core ontology you can get from the uh, Texas site. And a lot of the, the Kalo OWL ontology you can get from the uh, openiris.org site. But a few features of IRIS. Uh, so IRIS is a semantic desktop. Um, other contenders in the space are, are, I guess, Gnosis and Haystack, Sandler maybe. One differentiator is it, it uses real office applications. So as opposed to something like Haystack, where they were trying to, they had kind of a, an underlying KB, and then they made connectors into IMAP, for instance, to populate that KB, and then they would use, they would kind of build their own view mechanisms to make email clients. Um, so where a lot of others are doing build your own apps, we instrument third-party apps like Mozilla Mail, Mozilla Browser, OpenOffice, Glow for Calendar, uh, Jabber for Chat, etc. And we harvest or suck in all of the data and the events in these applications uh, into the knowledge base. Um, Iris is based on a plugin architecture, so we have more than 180 plugins now, and, plug and every aspect of Iris is, is a plugin basically, except for a very tiny core. Um, so UI, there are different themes you can plug in. Uh, knowledge base, the actual uh, which triple store is, is in the back end, um, et cetera, is a, is a plug in. We have natural language plugins for it. Machine learning components that plug into a framework, uh, individual applications. So if you wanted to add a map or add, you know, if you have some arbitrary third-party application that you would like to play in this space, it's relatively easy to add it as a plugin and then to uni unite and unify its data across all other uh, representations. So when I harvest an email from Mozilla and it creates a contact record and I harvest, it has its own person representation and I, I click on an appointment and it has an attendee and I harvest that, it will all go to the same person object doing a number of different normalization steps, et cetera, and build, it try, the goal is to build up this common model across my information set. Um, it's written in Java. Uh, we, we deal with semantic objects, which is kind of a Java object on top of OWL. Um, 
Uh, IRA supports full text with relational queries, so you could say find all documents that were presented at this meeting that uh, authored by Jim that contain the text. So seamlessly, we've kind of done Sparkle extensions that let you mix a full text query in with the more relational query. And there's the ontology-based event and action framework I mentioned is, is part of IRIS. There's a machine learning framework. It's open source and LGPL, so it's, it's useful for lots of different purposes. And when you download the, you know, so IRIS, uh, with all of its Kalo plugins, is only a tiny, tiny piece of all of Kalo. And the open source, we, uh, we tried to put as much into the open source domain as possible, but it's only a fairly small subset of the Kalo version, because the Kalo version has a bunch of many more plugins. But, but hopefully it'll at least be something you can play with and use and, and see sort of how we're doing a lot of the ontology uh, techniques. So I'm going to, uh, this is a time for questions. Also, I'm going to switch over um, to a different machine for the, and give a quick demo. If I can, hold on just a second. can't get to the which. Okay, so this is um, People who have WebEx and maybe VNC screen sharing can see um, uh, Iris. So what you get is on this right panel, just a little bit, um, there are a number of applications. And as I said, new third-party apps can be added at the time. And when I do things like I, I click on a message, um, it will harvest and download that, that information and then update the knowledge base, at which point many different learning algorithms um, are, are going. So in, first, in terms of the apps, we have mail, uh, we have web browser, um, calendar, file browser, chats. And there's a number of data that gets extracted from these, these different pieces, and, and it's uh, extensible. Um, let me take a look to highlight some of the learning that goes on in Kalo. Here I've selected uh, projects um, data. And if you look at this, and you can see for a particular project, um, you can start to see and navigate the, the space that ontology that, that, um, that we have. It's kind of a very simple UI. But Kalo has various participants, sub-projects, uh, tasks. If you can click on a participant, you can see what projects he's working on, uh, et cetera. And in this project list, there's like 10 or 12 projects, something like that. Um, most of the projects, I think everything that says either CC or AE or LDA were automatically created. So I didn't type in any of them. So what happened was Kalo Iris um, read through my email and used clustering to, to kind of group the email into chunks or projects. And then with that email, you'll see that there's kind of a list of people that were added uh, automatically, which is the extracted people who are belong to that project. Um, and also, there's a list of keywords that the project is, is generally about. 
and those were, were computed uh, automatically. Uh, and even the name for the project, so Kalo came back and said, I think this cluster, or this project should be called Kalo OP Report. And they go, oh, yeah, that's my, o I look at the people, I look at the keywords, I look at the title, and I say, oh, yeah, that, that's my OP project. So I, I, it, Kalo proposed this name, and I gave it this, this name. And similarly, it came up with things like CATS, test, which is my testing, prod subproject, task manager, which is all this task management stuff, transfer learning. So these are all the names that Kalo Iris came up with um, automatically. And as I said, it's built this list of people, the participants, who belongs to that project without me having to type anything in. And that's very, very useful. So now I know who in the world works on which project. Uh, also, if I click on a person, so now a person is uh, itself uh, an, a semantic object. So here you can see Andrew McCallum. I didn't type in any of this as well. So all of this contact information was extracted from the web or from emails. You can see sometimes it makes mistakes. So title, it, it actually got the wrong title for him. But the rest looks to be uh, pretty good. It came up with a list of keywords um, for the person. So he's a machine learning guy. He does conditional random fields, um, language modeling, uh, robot learning, things of that sort. It's automatically calculated the list of projects he works on in my life. So for people who know Andrew or on the Kalo project, transfer learning, OP, Iris, desktop, and Kalo test, that's actually a pretty good representation in how I divide things up. But note the projects. Certain cases, it'll try to find articles from the web that he's published. It wasn't able to do it for this person. Maybe it can do for, for some of the other people. Um, so you can start to see that Kalo, just by receiving an email, it's starting to build up this model of what I work on, who works on it, what information about the people, um, uh, things, uh, uh, things like that. And again, as I work with, so, so that model as it's built is then is leveraged for other uh, meeting, you know, other um, learning algorithms. So if I click on a particular uh, meeting, such as Dashboard, uh, you'll see this panel, and it's a little bit small, um, here, where Kalo is suggesting a bunch of things. So it says, for this email message, uh, it's very unlikely I'll respond. That's, I, I hardly ever respond to anything, so that's, pro that's probably an easy one to guess. It's not a meeting, and it's a meeting request, although it does mention meeting um, at 3 p.m., but it, it could tell that this isn't proposing a meeting, so it's, it's smart enough to do that. Um, it extracts out different people who are mentioned, and it has information about those, uh, about those uh, people. Um, uh, it, it's proposed a prep pack, so these are other uh, emails that might be important that I that relate to this particular thing, emails, and maybe, I guess they're all emails in this case, but people. Um, it's trying to guess what project this relates to, so in my, in my world. So dashboard fires meeting today, um, it's, it's correctly classified as dashboard, and if, if it were something else, I could, could select it from my projects list and give it feedback. Um, et cetera. So you can see that whenever, um, uh, you know, when I click on something else, this is a test council, should be related to the test project likely and um, different, you know, prep packs. Uh, and here it actually thinks it's a meeting request. It's wrong, so I can, I can give it, uh, it's unlikely this contains a meeting request. She's just telling me that she's in a meeting. But I'll give feedback and Kayla will learn from that. Um, it's bringing useful meeting appointments and, and uh, messages. 
correctly guess the project. If I want to, I can you know, kind of stroke it and say, nice, nice job, you were right about that. So as, as the user interacts with their various applications, at any point in time, Kalo is using all of the, the logic um, that it has to kind of build its model and, and validate this, this model of, um, of the person. Um, so that, that's generally the types of things. I guess um, I could show one other. Well, I, I think that's probably enough. I'm running a little bit over time. But that gets kind of a sense of when you download uh, Iris. I think most of everything that I've shown uh, here uh, will be is part of the op Iris open source piece, although some of the components that I'm showing, like Dashboard and uh, Doc Assist and things like that, um, are probably not part of the open source release at this point. Okay, so that's, that's kind of demonstration of uh, IRIS system. You can download it at uh, openiris.org uh, and, you know, see there's some papers about it and things of that, that sort. Are there any final questions? One question relevant to the exercise we are doing on ontologizing the ontolog uh, content or ontolog body of knowledge. If we download a, a iris and set it up for, let's say, uh, ontolog member X, I mean, what do we get? I mean, do, do we get sort of the Kalo for this ontolog member X or we only get a small subset of the functions that, uh, that, that one would expect, I mean, implement, uh, having a sort of full Kalo. Um, so let me, let me show, uh, sorry, I stopped sharing for a second. Let me share again. Um, well, so the short, the short answer is, so Iris is sort of the semantic desktop that works best with Kalo. Um, so it is a desktop tool. It's, it's kind of right currently, in its current incarnation, it comes with Mozilla, a you know, for browser, for email, a calendar, a chat, file browser, things of that sort. And those are all instrumented and harvested and, and learning can happen on it. And it comes with a number of learning algorithms, many of the ones that I showed, uh, showed uh, today. So it can learn information about people, it can cluster email into projects, um, it can suggest classify uh, messages into your projects, things of that sort. So we've put, you know, again, Iris is a tiny part of Halo because there's meeting understanding things, there's task management things. This is it, it just, Iris is a part of the organize your information function of Kalo, one of six functions. And in the open source release, um, basically put as much, uh, as much as we can because some things are proprietary. Like in the version I just showed you, I can actually ask natural language questions and say, find all people with expertise in machine learning. And it will handle that as a natural language query, map it into the appropriate ontology, query the system, and, and pull back information that came from lots of learning algorithms. So that's a commercial component that's not part of the open source release. But um, so what you'll get is when you go to uh, openiris.org, um, I think see the page here. Um, you know, this will give you some information about what you get. But you'll get as much of the Iris system. I mean, you'll get Iris, 
Um, and there's a few plugins that I showed today that are not there, but mostly you'll get what I, what I showed you today. Well, it, it but again, keep in mind this is a, a fraction of of Kalo, uh, Kalo the whole. And, and I'm just I'm just kind of demoing, demoing the iris aspect of Kalo today. Adam, if um, if we would do this, and this is one of the things as I was watching you build that um, you know Adam uh, McCullum situation, it looks like it's pulling all of that data then from what from your computer to create that information, correct? So it's coming. So one is all of the information that it creates is stored locally on my computer. And it's pulling out of your computer to create that for that information. And the learning that the, the sources of information come from really three places on Kalo. One is the open web. So it probably for Andrew McCallum, I think it probably went or Daphne Kohler, um, it found a home page for her. And it's likely that use the home page to fill in some of this other information. I see, because I noticed, for instance, that uh, square dancing, and I thought, okay, how did square dancing show up in there if you were only pulling from work kind of related things? So it comes from three sources. It could come from emails that I've received, right. signature. It could come from any files that I have on my desk. Like maybe I have a, you know, and it sometimes makes, you know, makes mistakes, but maybe Andrew was the author of a publication that I have on my disk that was about, um, you know, or Daphne was about a Bayesian something or other. Right. Bayesian networks, and that term actually came from there because it was able to determine she's the author of this publication. Well, the reason I'm asking this question has to go with um, proprietary information. Um, who has this? Once you, let's say I downloaded Iris and I was trying to use that. The information I collect, the Kalo, then available to others, or is it only just by available to me? Only so the information you collect is it's, it's entirely local and it's only available to you. Okay. So all of this knowledge is just kind of locally uh, uh, persisted, but and it comes from sources you have access to. Okay. Including the public web, like her homepage or things like that. Okay. Thank you. Adam, could you? This is David Witten. Could you elaborate a little bit more on these magic rooms and um, meeting, uh, getting information about meetings? How in the world does that work? Uh, how does it work? So let me see if I have any slides on this. We do have a video um, that actually shows. Uh, let me, let me, and of course my desktop is now all disorganized because I'm at the wrong re resolution, so I can't find it. Um, I'll try to find a slide in in just a minute that might. Let me try quickly. Well, a verbal description would actually help those listening to the the recording of this too. Uh, right. So, how does it work? So, at, at a high level, we have numbers of different sensors, um, speech recognition. We have numbers of different cameras. We have digital paper. We have whiteboards, um, etc. And so, sensors are kind of coming in, and then there's a whole network of fusion a fusion agents. Some of them multimodal. Um, some are that are kind of combining and integrating different sources of information. Um, there's back, a lot of background knowledge um, that Kalo has access to. So everything that I have in my iris, Kalo can see, and then sometimes it's helped author. Um, so it knows who the people are in the meeting. It knows you know everything that I show, the keywords and the titles um, of the people, who's important, and so. 
speech recognizers are actually being updated uh, live um, based on uh, the particular context coming into that, that meeting, which means you know, it will have a prep pack of documents that are believed uh, that, will, that are relevant to this particular meeting and, and perhaps an agenda that is extracted. And those can be special words that are being that, that will adjust the speech recognizers um, and look at the particular pieces. Uh, you know, look look at emphasize particular words in the dialogue. And the main actions, the main outputs of this of the meeting system are a transcript. Um, well, first of all, there's very low level actions that get written to this meeting ontology knowledge base. Who looked at what? Whether they were sitting? Whether they were standing? Uh, what did they say? Um, there's a little bit of work on kind of facial recognition, like nodding and gestures. And there are higher level events um, that try to fuse this information. So yes, this, this person nodded and responded, so maybe, and, and the speech seemed to be positive, the head nod seems to be positive, so maybe there were, this can be aggregated into a higher level, um, you know, accept speech act. Uh, so to speak. But the main outputs are a transcript, uh, action items, uh, roles of people, so maybe customer, maybe presenter, uh, things like that. The transcript um, will be indexed into the video, so you can click and see when, you know, at what point did they say this, at uh, what point did this happen. And they try to create new action items or tasks and, and track status of tasks. So I don't know if that answered your question. Hopefully it was. Hopefully it was close. Try to see if. Yeah, well, Adam. I mean, yes. That's really wonderful. We wish we could keep you for another hour, uh, except that we are running out of time with the uh, conference line. And on behalf of the community, let's all thank Adam for such an, an eye-opening presentation on this huge project that they have been engaged in. Thank you very much, Adam. Right, thanks. thanks, Peter. And thanks, Adam. The session is recorded. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Right. Very good. Thank you. Bye. What were you going to say about the recording? Everybody went off at the same time. I believe there will be a recording at, at the wiki site, an audio recording at Peter's wiki site. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Okay. Bye. Recording, recording on whose site? Uh, if there you go, go back go. onto the wiki session page, at towards the bottom of the page, there's a section uh, about the recording, and obviously the content will be posted uh, uh, later, but it will okay. be available before the end of the day. All right. Fine. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Thanks, Doug. Thank you, Peter. Welcome. Welcome.